Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Always great to have you with us alongside Blue Ribbon's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. Coming up on today's show, we're going to have a guy who's uh, just a beloved figure in college basketball. He is the new president of the NABC Board of Directors for this coming season, and he's head coach at Lipscomb, Lenny Acuff. He'll join us in just a little bit. We've got a lot of news to get to. Chris, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. You know, like we talked about last podcast, it's all basketball all the time, even after the season starts. I do a NBA, NBA draft preparation book for NBA TV. Uh, I've been doing that for about 13 or 14 years. I've lost track and still, you know, constantly working on Blue Ribbon. I've handed out all my assignments and I'm working on some of my own. I'm, I'm not going to say which story, but I've probably got 5,000 words written on a story already. Huh. <laughs> just by trying to keep track of everything, man, it's just, I was always one as a kid who would look at the transactions section in the scoreboard of the paper because I just loved the trades and, and, and contract negotiations. I don't know why. Maybe I should have been a general manager. <laughs> um, but I just really liked this time of, of acquisition and rebuilding and reloading and, you know, that sort of thing and uh, seeing who can do what. I, I mean, I had an assistant coach in the SEC tell me it was really difficult and kind of scary to get good intel on transfers because you just don't know. It's kind of like this two-minute dating thing where you go from table to table and you haven't had a year or two to to gauge whether these kids are good people. And and, uh, he says that's a little scary. But uh, the the players at this particular coach and and his team were able to land, not scary, by uh, by reasons of blood relative and Ivy League. So <laughs> I think you probably know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I had a coach, too, tell me that, that sometimes when players, they got a player from the portal and they joined their program, that they had to uh, eliminate or, or work on some things that they called portal habits. And uh, exactly saying that, yeah, you know, there, there's some parts of these guys games, not, not in every case, but in some cases that uh, that needed a little work. And uh, I thought that was a funny way of saying it, that uh, it, it was, it basically the gist of it was there are a reason that the, some of these guys have moved around a couple of times and, and you have to do some well, work, that's, work once that's, they arrive uh, to make sure they, they fit well in your program. That's a great point, Kevin. And, and on the flip side of that, I remember last year, um, uh, Casey Alexander, the Belmont coach, told me that the, the transfer, uh, Drew, uh, what was his name, that they got, Freeberg uh, from Princeton, I think, uh, or Harvard, one of those Ivy League schools where he played. The coaches from his old school helped recruit them as much as Casey's staff did because mm-hmm. they knew it was a perfect fit. And they also knew that because of Ivy League rules, which I think are uh, stupid uh you can't have a red shirt year there so they were going to help this kid find the best fit and they said you know belmont is it and casey said you know his school helped him as much as as his own assistant so uh, there's that too uh, i mean tennessee signed a kid from harvard and harvard put it on their twitter you know congrats to chris ledlam for signing with tennessee uh so it is interesting how the portal works. It can go both ways. 
Well, let's talk real quick about the biggest name finding a new home, and that's Hunter Dickinson, transferred from Michigan. There are a lot of uh, teams in play for him and a lot of talk about him potentially going to Kentucky or, or some other places. He ends up going to Kansas. One thing I thought was interesting about that, and I saw that guy play in person at the end of this. In fact, I saw his last game in Michigan because they played at Vanderbilt at yeah. NIT. And, uh, boy, he's really a talented big guy. He can do a lot of stuff. But he was pretty open about getting the NIL deal that he was looking for. And I thought that was interesting, maybe just a sign of the times. I think it definitely is. And, and you know, the, the NIL is, is, a, is a two-edged sword. It certainly, in some ways, legalizes things that were kind of kept under the the rug for years and, and, and done uh, above the rule book. Uh, but now it, it, it's legal and it keeps, I don't know, it keeps players who are marginal NBA picks in the college game longer. Hunter Dickinson is a lot better college player than, than he's predicted to be as an NBA player. Same with Oscar Shibway. So I think that's good for the game. Uh, you know, Hunter Dickinson is, is from the D.C. area, and people thought he was going to go to Maryland or Georgetown, but neither of those schools I don't think could match what Kansas was able to give. And that elevates Kansas really quickly. And Bill Self throughout his career has been able to, even before the portal, make some last uh, late, you know, late in the game acquisitions that transforms his team. And Hunter Dickinson will return them to the high-low offense he likes to use or big-to-big and uh hunter can do like you said on the block he can go out uh and make threes he's a great rim protector uh strong rebounder and unselfish so uh, it's really going to help them they made another acquisition that wasn't so well publicized but a kid named nick timberlake from towson he was signed for one reason and one reason only he's a flamethrower from three and they needed a guy to replace grady dick so uh, Kansas helped itself in the portal almost as well as anybody. Um, I see a lot of these ratings, and they go by numbers. West Virginia leads because they signed five. But I think in terms of filling needs, Kansas, and then Gonzaga really helped itself. They they signed that kid, Graham E.K. from Wyoming. He set out last year. But in 21-22, Wyoming posted up uh, more than any team in the country. So – they needed somebody to replace Drew Timmy. Then they also got Ryan Nemhart from Creighton, who people thought was the best uh, point guard in the portal. And another shooter named Steele Venters. Uh, that's a great name from Eastern Washington. Just another guy from, you know, a, a mid-major, but that can step up his game because shooting translates. Yeah, I'm sure they're hoping uh, Ryan Nemhart can uh, do as well as his brother did uh, playing for oh, Gonzaga. Oh, he does that, they're, they'll be right back there. Yeah. Uh, Gonzaga is another team that, even before the portal was cool, they were able to take key transfers that fit in. And, of course, now they're they're in the ballpark for most five-star players, too. And it's just a really exemplary program they've built there. But they've really gotten there with the help of some great transfers. From transfers to high school players signing, and the biggest name is Bronny James. He signed with Southern Cal, and that's a big get for Andy Enfield. You know, there's a whole lot of spotlight on Bronny, and there has been since the time he was a little kid, and it feels like he's he's been in the public eye for a long time with his, his famous father. And LeBron seems to want to play in the league with his son. It feels like that's been a goal of his for a long time, but uh, I, I think that's kind of neat that, that Bronny is going to play college basketball and go to Southern Cal, and, I mean, he might not be there for very long, but at least we get to, to see him play in the college game. 
You know, the first thing I thought of when uh, when I heard that was that commercial where uh, young LeBron was was talking to a present day LeBron, and he was saying, "You mean to tell me you can listen wirelessly on your headphones, you can watch movies on your phone, and you have electric cars?" And LeBron was like, "Yeah." And then he asked old LeBron, "Is it true? Can I live up to the hype?" And LeBron says, well, some things you just got to find out for yourself. And then young LeBron says, we go into the league. We go into the league. And that's, I kind of thought of that. Uh, Bronny is, let's put it honestly, he's no LeBron. Nobody is. Uh, our friend Mike DeCourcy, who delights in throwing out these firebomb th- uh, tweets, said that it's not even close that LeBron is the best player in history. And, you know, I I couldn't mount a serious argument with him, but LeBron is going to a place where they've already got Boogie Ellis, uh, who led the Trojans in scoring at almost 18 a game last year. And they signed the number one recruit in the nation, another guard, Isaiah Collier. So Bronny's not going to be needed, so maybe he'll fit in. He's more a shooter, albeit an undersized one for the league, at 6'3", maybe not in college. But uh, I think being close to his dad is going to help. By all accounts, and I've read quotes from scout, NBA scouts, from college coaches, he's a great kid, uh, uh, you know, exert energy on defense, does everything you'd want him to do. He's just not 6'9", and built like Adonis, <laughs> and, and has otherworldly skills like his father. Nobody does. Uh, so... In that way, I feel for the kid. So I think he made a good decision to stay as close to home and to his dad. Honestly, if, if he'd have gone to Ohio State, I don't think his dad would have been unhappy because yeah. had LeBron had to have gone to school, had the one and done been in place then, I think he would have gone to Ohio State. Uh, so good for Bronny. Uh, he's a good kid. He hasn't let, hey, I'm I'm the best player in in history, son, get to him, which I think is super admirable. Maybe I need to bring on Mike. We need to bring on Mike DeCourcy and, and you and me and him will have a debate about this. We we should. <laughs> I still. <laughs> about this best I mean, player in history I, thing. <laughs> to me, it's Michael Jordan. Uh, but I don't know. I got to thinking about LeBron. I mean, he's now the leading scorer in history and he did it. Kareem was, but Kareem played till he was 41. And what's Bron, LeBron's 36, 37, whatever it is. Uh, he passed that and, and will crush that record. He's won everywhere he's been. I mean, he's the prototypical positionless player. You could literally, and this is kind of like Magic Johnson. I'll never forget when Magic was a rookie and Kareem was hurt. They went to Philadelphia and won the title. Yeah, they played with him, at, him center. at center. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, so – LeBron could literally you, – you hear about this all the time, especially in college. Well, he could play one through five. Nah. But LeBron could play one through five. MJ, no. So, uh, Mike brings up a good point, and I'll give Mike credit. He spends way more time on social media than I would want to. But when he gets on there, he drops some bombs. He does. And, and, he, and the, he's not afraid. And that's the thing The thing I like about it, too, though, is, like, he has takes, and he has some pretty hot takes, but he always has stuff yeah. to back him up. And, 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 oh, and he's, he, 
yeah he definitely yeah. brings he, the he, info and the data to back up whatever his stance is and he may not agree with him but but he always makes you think and and, and i appreciate the, that about mike a lot. Right, yeah he's smart and he's well read and, and he he doesn't make hot takes without uh, being able to to defend them so all right, all right. Uh, one, one more for he, me on this particular topic I think Michael Jordan is the greatest competitor of all time. And that, I, that to no me is, is the, and I'm not saying, and that's going to take nothing away from LeBron as a competitor because from certainly anybody. he's there from too. Anybody. But Magic man, was a competitor. Yeah, Bird like, was a competitor. Yeah, like those three you mentioned, and, and Kareem, you can probably put him in the mix too. Those guys are competitors at a different level than to me, anybody that has played basketball. Way, way different. But Michael now, he, he would hurt people's feelings. His I own mean, teammates. Yeah, I mean, he would get in people's faces. He wanted to win no matter what it was he did. Uh, I think that hurt him on the golf course a little bit. Uh, He could probably afford it. But, yeah, he's a competitor, and I think you're right about that. I don't think anybody out-competes Michael Jordan in the history of this game. Chris, uh, we lost a, a legend in college basketball over the last few days with the passing of Louisville great Denny Crum, a Hall of Fame coach and just a, a wonderful guy. Um, I had a chance to meet him once or twice. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the early 80s, Doctors of Dunk, were the best program in college basketball at that time over the span of several years. And certainly one of the most fun to watch. I mean, you think about that span between 1980 and 1986. They went to four Final Fours. They won two national championships in 1980, the Daryl Griffith team, and then uh, the 1986 team, which had you know Purvis Ellison, who was a fantastic freshman that, that season. They beat Duke in the final but a guy called Cool Hand Luke for just his, his calm under pressure and, and you know is an assistant under John Wooden and, and maybe had some chances to go back to UCLA, but d- decided to stay in Louisville and, and build his own legacy there. And I mean, I think about some of the great players he had. I mentioned Daryl Griffith and the, the McCraves and uh, Milt Wagner, Billy Thompson, the Camden Connection, Lancaster Gordon and Charles Jones and Kenny Payne, who's the coach there now. And you had Purvis Ellison and uh, LeBradford Smith and you know guys like that uh, in that next era of that program but i mean they they were so good back then and man they would put on that zone press at the end of games and teams would just melt yes. and and no better example of that than the famous dream game which was 40 years ago in 1983 in knoxville and chris you were there it went to overtime the louisville kentucky game they hadn't played in, in over two decades uh they went to overtime as 64 64 and louisville outscored them uh, I think it was 16-4 to or something like that in OT, 180-68. to When they put the press on, Kentucky started turning it over, and it became a dunk fest, and they did that to a lot of teams during that stretch. But just one of the all-time great coaches, and, and by all accounts, I mean, you, you heard all these different people who had been around him or had any connection with him just say yeah. what a great guy he was. But that, that kind of made me sad to see uh, Denny Crump pass away. He was 86 years old. Me too. He was a class act, and as you say, I was at that game, and that, that press – Louisville's guards looked like great white sharks during that press. They were killers. And that game, I'll never forget, I was walking to the press room and somebody literally physically pushed me out of the way. It was Joe B. Hall. I don't think he was real happy about that result. He didn't want to play. Remember, that I, I sent you, I texted you a clip last night that somebody had put on Twitter about Denny Crum saying, well, did you talk to Joe B.? Uh, did he tell you he was going to play? He probably told you he didn't want to play, right? And, and he was right. They, he didn't want to play. Yeah, Joe B. didn't have a lot of answers why. when uh, when John Tesh was asking him about uh, playing Louisville, did he? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was weird. It was John Tesh that was the interviewer. Uh, he uh, uh, of the elevator music fame later. You know, I, I did some reading up on, 
on Coach Crum after, and and I we all knew he played and coach at UCLA and coached for uh, the legend. But I didn't know a couple of things. One, he played professional poker. I did not know that. Two, he collected Western novels by Louis L'Amour. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, three, during his coaching career, he was among the founders of the Louisville Eccentric Observer, the city's alternative weekly newspaper. I give him credit for that. And for 20 years, he bred horses. So he was a Renaissance man as being a hell of a man. And uh, his passing uh, saddens me, and uh, the game of basketball will sorely miss him. And really in the bigger picture for that city, the 1970s in Louisville were a time with a lot of racial tension in that town. And that program led by Denny Crum, it felt like, and I've read people say this, and I sort of remembered this too from living there when I was a kid, that 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 program really brought that community together, the success of those teams. And and, and to his credit, I mean, he was the leader of that. I thought about a time that I met him. I was with my aunt and uncle, and uh, we went out to eat dinner, and we came out, and there was nobody much around. And we were out in the parking lot, and we ran into Denny Crum and his wife, Susan, my uncle was a pharmacist in Louisville, and uh, he seemed to know Denny Crum a little bit. My uncle was very excited to introduce Denny to his his nephew, the uh, guy who does radio sports in Nashville. And I was just kind of embarrassed by the whole thing. I was like, oh, hey, you know. <laughs> but my uncle was so excited for him to meet his nephew, and uh, Denny could not have been more kind and gracious. He was really cool. We stood there and talked for a couple of minutes, but that was probably the most interaction I ever had with him. I think I might have met him another time or two when they – maybe came to Western to play uh, with Louisville. And that, that's another area I'll give them credit. Uh, they, they played everybody, uh, and, and they weren't oh, afraid yeah. to go on the road and play in Bowling Green at Western. I give them total credit for that. I think what really, and, and back one more time to 1983, I, I think in that stretch of seasons, they had the two championship teams. I almost think the 83 team that lost to Houston in that classic game in the Final Four in Albuquerque, that might have been the best team of all of them, and you know they didn't win the championship. And it's funny how those things happen sometimes in basketball or all different sports that you have teams that are they're really good, but maybe not your greatest team that do win. And then you have teams that might be your greatest team, and they come up a little bit short. They had so many good teams and players back then. To me, one of the things that really maybe caused the decline of that program in some ways was they were not very quick to embrace the three-pointer. And there are a lot of hurt feelings when Tom Jurich came along and they basically pushed Denny Crum out to bring in Rick Pitino. There was a lot of hurt there for a long time. But to Denny's credit, he he came back around and became sort of this elder statesman and ambassador for for Louisville uh, basketball and and really their whole athletics program. And I I think that was neat that that he was able to to, to make peace with that and and put it behind him and, and be around and be as beloved and kind of feel that love from their fan base like he did. Yeah, I, I think he was nothing but class. I, I was around him quite a bit. I, I wouldn't say that I that I knew him, but I was in interview situations with just a few reporters and some in larger settings. And he always carried himself with class. And he was a great competitor, but he was also a gracious loser. So you can't have too many Denny Crumbs in this world. You really can't. And to have one less, the game is diminished. And then we have to talk about this part. Uh, Bob Huggins, the West Virginia coach, suspended three games by West Virginia, $1 million salary reduction after using a slur during a radio interview in Cincinnati. And, Chris, when all that started to go down, I kind of figured he might be done, but he does hold on to his job for now. Yeah, he does. I noticed that a lot of the columnists, some of them who are 
get a little preachy and and uh, a little I don't know pretentious and a little holier than now. Nobody actually outright called for his firing. The reason is because he treats the media. You know, he's pretty cool to hang with and joke with and talk with with the media. Uh, I looked up a couple of things. Uh, when Hog messes up, he goes hard. Uh, in 2020, according to the Vatican, there were 1.36 billion Catholic worldwide. And a recent, well, not recent, a 10-year UCLA study uh, said that 3.8% of adults in the U.S. identify as LGBT. And so he offended more than a billion people. I mean, theoretically, not everybody listened. Uh, so he went hard on that one. But I wonder, uh, you know, for an exemplary career, I mean, there were times when people thought he recruited hoodlums, let's be honest. Uh, but can, can one slip up like that cost you your job? I don't know. Um, uh, in the two statements that he made after the incident, I think he, he took ownership of it. He showed uh, a respectful amount of contrition. The, the money he loses, the games he won't coach, let's face it, those are drops in the bucket. Uh, but if he's sincere in his remorse and he becomes an advocate for a community that I think is being legislated against in state houses around the country, some good can come out of this. So uh, that's my thoughts on it. And also, it's uncanny. Uh, Ted Lasso mirrors life. The latest episode of Ted Lasso took on this subject head on, and it's one of the, I mean, coolest television shows I've ever seen. So I hope some good can come out of it. I'm not sure he deserved to be fired, but a million bucks in, in the three games, it's a drop in the bucket. But we'll see if his contrition is legit and and he honestly tries to help a, a community that has been marginalized. Uh, no, none of us can know uh, what it's like to be in that community unless we're in that community. So uh, Bob Huggins is going to find out. And I wonder what happened to Bill Cunningham, the the host of the show that started the whole mess. Uh, he, he should be involved, too. Some rule changes to talk about, or at least potential changes, uh, most significant involving legal guarding position on block charge calls. And to, to read what the, the description is, a defender would have to be in position to draw a charge at the time an offensive player plants his foot to go airborne to attempt a field goal. Uh, Rick Barnes is the rules committee chair, the head coach at Tennessee. I, I do think there needs to be some tweaking on uh, legal guarding position on these calls. I also would like to see some sort of clarification on these situations where a guy is driving with the ball, a defender is moving with him and not necessarily in position. A small amount of contact is made. The defender goes to the floor and they call a charge automatically. I saw way too many of those this past season. Yeah. I want to see more offense, not more offensive fouls. I don't know about you. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. And it's funny, a, a columnist who covers Arkansas says that this is a result of Rick Barnes being the, obviously the chair of the committee, Jalen Williams, remember him, Mr. Charge drawer. He was a magnet for Arkansas. And they played down there and lost a game in which he drew several charges. And the columnist opined that that's why Rick did this. I don't think Rick did it just for this. Uh, in fact, he had this quote, our goal is to try to reduce the number of charges we want to give more time to the offensive player to adjust to defensive player movement 
and reduce the hard collisions that are taking place. It's funny. Uh, we've got Lenny Acuff on. One of the worst examples I ever saw was uh, Lipscomb and, and, and Tennessee and Lipscomb's player who ended up in the NBA. He was as big as a linebacker. He came down and charged in and John Fulkerson from Tennessee and Fulkerson smashed his elbow and broke his wrist and just completely derailed his career. At that time, I did a story on Fulkerson once and Grant Williams told me if it hadn't been for that injury, you wouldn't have heard of Grant Williams. Now that was just Grant being polite, but you know, Fulkerson was dealing at the time and, uh, that injury just devastated him. So, uh, yeah, I, I would like to see a lot less collision. Some other rule uh, experimentations that are interesting that I saw in the NIT, they're going to widen the lane to 16 feet. Uh, I think our friend Michael DeCourcy does not agree with me, but I would like to see a wider lane again, maybe to clean up post play and facilitate offense a little bit. Uh, another rule that I saw, uh, players are going to be allowed to wear uniform number zero to 99. Uh, there have been numbers in the past that you could not wear. So uh, that'll be interesting to see number 99 uh, <laughs> take the floor. I am sort of surprised uh, they haven't changed that before now because because the, the college basketball number system is based on officials being able to, to signal the numbers with one hand. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, so, yeah, I would like to see that and, the, the other thing that I think would be significant, officials would be able, this is just a proposal, uh, to review goaltending basket interference calls during the next media timeout to ensure the calls were accurate as long as the official calls it on the floor. So that's another one that gets messed up a lot, uh, basket interference, goaltending. So to have the ability uh, to maybe fix that that could be that could be the difference in a career, man. Sure. <laughs> you know, wins and losses. So, yeah, uh, I'm glad there's a rules committee in place. Uh, I, I've talked to Rick Barnes about it. Nobody is as serious about it as he is. Uh, I don't think it's for any uh, personal game. I think it's for the good of the game. And, and just like Lenny Acuff being in charge of the NABC, I think the rules committee is in good hands. Chris, our guest is a guy who's really a well-known and beloved and respected figure around college basketball. He's head coach at Lipscomb, and for this season upcoming, the president of the NABC Board of Directors, he is Lenny Acuff. Lenny, how you doing? Good, guys. Thank you for having me. Honored to be on. Coach, in, in all my career, and I've been doing this longer than I care to admit, I've run across few coaches whose peers talk about them with the reverence they have for you. And uh, so I think it's appropriate that you are you have ascended to the presidency of the NABC. It's funny uh, you apologize, which you didn't need to for being a little late to the podcast because you were already doing some NABC business. But I just think it's so cool that your peers have such respect, not only for your offensive expertise, which is immense, but your character as well. Well, that, that's really nice of you to say, very kind. I'm not sure I'm worthy of that. But I, I think if there's anything that I would probably feel the best about and have it, I mean, there's a lot of things I'm, I'm thankful and honored to have that opportunity. But, but also as a guy, you know, I mean, my first job was an NAIA job 35 years ago. 
And, uh, you know, I've coached at NAIA, I've coached at Division Two, and now coaching in Division One. So um, I do think, you know, when, you, when you're on a board, you, you don't go in there to represent yourself. You go in there to represent the people that, that the level you're at. And so just having an idea that what it's like at different levels, I think gives me a unique perspective going into this. What do you see as, you know, obviously the, the big elephants in the room are the NIL and the portal, but what are some of the issues that face coaches today that maybe you didn't face when you started out in this business? Well, you know, that's a great question, Chris. I, I think, you know, the thing you face now is very different than what you faced four years ago when I got to Lipscomb. I mean, there, there was no transfer portal. If you were going to transfer, you were going to sit out unless you were a graduate transfer. And, and that was actually a fairly controversial rule, too. I mean, people thought you even have to sit out as a grad transfer. Not that, you know, obviously that, that the NIL is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. But the transfer portal has changed college basketball forever. And um, the ability for kids to leave at any point after, you know, after the season or whatever, it just your, um, your expertise at building a program probably is not as relevant as it used to be. Um, you know, we, we really built our program. And I was going to do the same thing at Lipscomb. We built our program at Huntsville on bringing kids in and redshirting them. And we took a lot of pride in being a developmental program. Well, now that's very, very, very difficult to do. Um, when you talk about redshirting kids, they don't want to do that. And then you also get into a thing where you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. If you don't play a kid, he's probably going to leave. But if he plays really, really well, he's probably going to leave. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we talked to I, we talked to our guys about you know having a long-term vision with short-term goals. But I don't think you can really do that now. I think you got to treat every year as a separate, its own, its own journey. Like this is our one-year deal. And we tell them between our guys will get here June 1st and between June 1st and March, whenever, this is about we. This is, this is about the 15 guys standing in this circle. But after March 1st, it becomes about you. And I'm okay, I'm okay with having those conversations. But in those eight to nine months, it's got to be about us. It can't be about you. Visiting with Lenny Acuff, Lipscomb coach and uh, head of the NABC Board of Directors for this upcoming season. In that same vein, how challenging and maybe frustrating is it at times just to try to keep your roster together from one season to the next? Extremely hard, Kevin. And, you know, you used to, you would ne- I think we're going to have eight juniors next year on our team. You would never do that in years past. Um, you know, you always looked at keep your classes balanced. You wanted to make sure that you, we, we talked about growing guys in the weeds. You know, you always wanted to make sure you had guys coming and you wanted to have that guy on your team where he has a great year and everybody's like, where did he come from? Well, he's been here. You know, he just he grew up in our program, and that's what you want. You want guys that are willing to work while you wait. Well, now you just, you just literally have to look at it. It's almost like you're building a, a, an NBA roster. You have to have roster management and construction thoughts and, you look for guys that uh, can be two for ones, a guy that one guy that can play two positions, um, one guy that gives you more versatility. But I think if you look too far out, it, you're really missing the boat because it's it's really difficult to look beyond more than a year. However, I do think if you're going to be consistently excellent, I still think your foundation has to be high school kids. I just think you've got to have guys that are with you and have buy-in and have equity. 
I thought or two on some of the potential rule changes, including uh, legal guarding position on block charge calls. I know there, there are a few other things that are related to replay, but what do you think about some of those? Yeah, I, we were actually on a call last week with the rules committee, and, and, the, and, and I do think the block charge has become a real lightning rod in our game. Um, the one thing that I do think you, you want to reward good defense and not reckless offense, however, it's it's just I do think that's the toughest call in basketball as we know. The the other thing is uh, there's a lot of injuries that occur once a person leaves his feet, and um, we've seen kids really really take tough tough falls. I think the biggest thing is, is clarifying okay what what is the point of takeoff? Like we got to make sure that if that guy for it to be a charge, you have to have a legal guarding position. And I do think there's got to be some way that we discourage guys from being sliding under when kids are in the air. Um, I, I think I do think the replay rule is healthy, but I think we've got to the point it's become a little excessive. Uh, I, I wish that we would have more of you get two coaches challenges a game, and if you choose to wait on those, if you choose to use those early in the game, then you use them, lose them late in the game. Um, as you guys know, some of these games, you end up going to the monitor four or five times in the last minute or two, and and you can lose your audience real quick. I mean, it just gets so drawn out, and you know, every every call the last two minutes, everybody's wanting to review. Well, I think as a coach, you know, you got two, and you need to make sure you use them wisely. And I do think those are things that are being discussed right now uh, from the rules committee. And actually, Rick Barnes is the chairman of the rules committee this year, and so. Um, I have great respect for him, and I know he cares greatly about the game. And, um, you know, that that's a good person to be heading that committee. Coach, the length of the court is the same. The baskets are the same heights. But what are the differences, and how has it been for you transitioning from D2 to D1? I know COVID ripped your one of your first teams apart really bad and, and, and hurt your transition. But you won 20 this year, and it – it seems like you've got your culture and your program established, but what have the differences been? Well, I, 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 the, the, the biggest thing is, Chris, I, I say this all the time, and you guys cover basketball at a high level, and you've done it for a long time, is that every level has levels, okay? Um, for instance, my really, really good teams at Huntsville or our really, really good teams at Huntsville, we would have been very competitive in the A-Sun. Um, now, whether we could have won or not, I don't know. I don't know if we ever had enough size around the goal to win a championship, but I do know that our guard play, our skill level, um, our cohesion would allow us to be competitive. And even now, I mean, like the, when you get to the top 15, 20 Division two teams in the country, they could play with probably at least half, if not more, of the Division wow. one teams. And, and the thing that, that – they, I think it's been evident in our league with Bellarmine and Queens coming in, who was a bit, both those teams have done well in their transition. Is the other thing when you when you're a Division two school, maybe you get an exhibition game or whatever against the Division one team. It's always on the road. I, I know when we were really rolling in Huntsville, I would have loved to have had some of these teams come to our place and have to win in our building. So when you go Division one, get in the league, now you've got home games against Division one teams, which you don't get in Division two. But I will say this, and we've been fortunate. We, we've beaten a few Power 5 teams since I've been here. But there's a big difference between, you know, the mid-majors and the high-majors. When you walk out there to play those games, 
if you're playing a legitimate top 25 team in the country, it's different. The, the bodies are different. Um, it's just another level of play. And so I think understanding that there's levels to every level, but no one respects Division II basketball or even a, the really good NAI programs like I do. They're good players. And now you're seeing those guys. And it would have affected me when I was in Huntsville. You can't keep a really good D2 kid because when they go in that transfer portal, if and when they go, they are prime real estate. I mean, there are yeah. people going hard after those kids, the highest level, because I think coaches have recognized the transition is probably, it translates more than most people think. And it's funny, I was just going to ask you that. As power conference schools, even Kansas, like took a kid from Towson, which you wouldn't think, but he can shoot. So it's shooting translates. So as power conference teams plunder so-called mid-majors, I've noticed a trend. I know Richie Riley at South Alabama took three D2 players last year. So uh, it seems like that's the way mid-major uh, programs are going to survive is, is maybe reach down to NAIA, NAIA D2. And I think you and, and many others have told me that there's a heck of a lot of good high school players that are being overlooked these days. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and our team this year, I thought we had a good team. And, and two of our starters, one was a D3 transfer, a first-team All-American Division three transfer, who led us in scoring in the semifinals of the conference tournament, uh, led us in scoring against Belmont, um, had led us in scoring against Liberty and all those wins. Um, and Matt Snare, who came from Emory, is a really good player. And our second leading scorer on our team was a young man named Darian Boyd, who was from Georgetown, Kentucky, an NAI transfer. So we were able to have two kids that came in right away and helped us that came from a lower level. But but I, I'm, I'm totally convinced there's better high school kids out there later in the recruiting cycle than at any point in my career. Um, I wow. think we signed, a, we signed a high school kid about a month ago that there's no way um, in, in years past he would have been available. And even today as we sit here on May the 11th, there are really good high school kids out there. And um, – but you, you, you have to say, okay, now, if he's really good, you're probably going to have, only have him for a year or two. But, again, I, th- I go back to you can't worry about that. You just got to do what you have to do. Coach Lenny Acuff is our guest. You, you were talking earlier about playing Bellarmine and th- them being in the Atlantic Sun. And when you, when you play them on the road, you play them at Freedom Hall, which was, is the legendary home of Louisville basketball. And we were talking about the, the uh, passing right. of Denny Crum. How much do you enjoy the chance sometimes when you take teams on the road and you play places like that that have some history to, to give the, the players a little history lesson about the game? You know, I always said if I was a Division One head coach, Kevin, that um, I would want to go places where it mattered. I'd want to go places that, you know, when you coach, you want to have stories and memories. Well, it's the same thing as a player. You want to go create memories. And uh, we played at Notre Dame this year. We lost by one point. Uh, we went to Michigan, so we're playing a game next door to the big house football stadium. We actually played really well and had a chance to win that game. We won at the Yum Center this year. We've been to Xavier. We've been to Auburn. I I just think when you do this, I would much rather go somewhere where the place is sold out, where it's a really unique environment and experience for the kids as opposed – and, and again, not being disrespectful, there's some Division I schools you go to, Power 5 schools, that before Christmas nobody goes to the game. Yeah. You know, I would much rather go somewhere where it really it's meaningful. Like we're opening up at Wichita State next year. 
Um, that's a really cool place to play. They sell out every game. Yeah. Yeah. We, we actually won at Dayton two years ago and they had sold out every ticket for the whole year. And so I, there's a couple other places I would love to go, but I do think when the kids look back, those are the things they're going to remember. And, and I think it's my job to give them the best experience we can and for them to have memories for a lifetime. Well, Liskum is uh, fortunate to have you, and so is the NABC as the uh, head of the board of directors for this coming season. Lenny Acuff, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you joining us. It's my pleasure, guys. Hope you have a great spring and look forward to connecting soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Coach. Great visiting with Lenny Acuff, the Lipscomb coach. And the Bisons are really good, Chris, as you mentioned. 20-13 and 13 last season, went 11-7 in the A-Sun. They lost to the eventual champion, Kennesaw State, in the conference semifinals. But he's done a really good job there and a tough act to follow in Casey Alexander, but uh, also the president of the NABC Board of Directors for this upcoming 23-24 season just installed there uh, not long ago. Uh, Chris, you had a couple more numbers on, on the transfer portal. You're going to pass along some interesting uh, stats you've uncovered there. This, this was this is bananas. Today, May 11th, as we tape this, is the final day students can enter the transfer portal without penalty, without sitting out a year. It's allowed. They're allowed 30 days after the end of their last uh, conference championship. So that would have been March 11th. Well, in 2016, long before the portal, there were 469 transfers, and even then. You, you had people and uh, writing about and talking about coaches saying transferring was an epidemic. Well, uh, the first year of the portal, uh, that that went up to 1,711. Last year, 1,761. And this year, once again, right now as it stands, I just checked verbal commits, it's 1,711. Now that, sir, is an epidemic. <laughs> Four four sixty nine. What was like a sniffle, a cold? You know, uh, uh, this is a full blown epidemic, and it's crazy because a lot of these people that enter the portal, and I pay attention almost as as much as probably anybody because of Blue Ribbon. But a lot of these kids, they don't end up at other D one schools. Yeah. They end up at JUCO. They end up at non D one schools. And by the same token, as Lenny said, and and Lenny's top two scores came from D2 and NAIA. By the same token, uh, a lot of those kids are getting their chance at the D1 level. So good coaches are always going to find a way for success. So when a coach like Lenny Acuff can no longer redshirt and build a program, he'll just go down a level and find good players there. So uh, there's always going to be a way. There's always going to be adjustments. But 1,711, I, I think – Kids need to realize the grass isn't always greener necessarily uh, um, on the other side of the fence. And certainly when you're going from a D1 school to a junior college somewhere in the wilds of Texas, <laughs> I don't think that's a step up. No offense to Texas JUCO. It's, it's, it's the best JUCO league in the country probably, but uh, that, that's a big difference from D1. It's also the time of year when you see administrators on the move, and uh, congratulations to Dan Leibovitz. He is the uh, has been with the SEC for the past few seasons. Now, now the senior associate commissioner for men's basketball for the Big East. So, congratulations to Dan. Yeah, Dan did a great job uh, at the SEC. He was the first, if I'm not mistaken. No, he wasn't the first, but he was the first former coach. 
to hold that position. It took the SEC a while to figure out they needed more than just CM Newton as a part-time consultant. They needed a full-time uh, associate commissioner in charge of men's basketball. And uh, Dan gave him that. Uh, I understand he wanted, just wanted to move back east. He's from Philadelphia and uh, his kids wanted to be there. So I get that. The SEC has to hire another good coach uh, or another candidate, probably with coaching experience. Uh, I'm going to throw a name out there. Uh, Lenny Acuff knows him. It's Craig Robinson who runs the NABC. He's a, a former coach. Uh, you know, he's got experience uh, working with coaches and basketball. And he's related to some politician guy that you may have heard of. So, uh, uh, you know, he's got some advantages working for him. Some might say disadvantages. But uh, I think he's a, he'd be a great candidate for the SEC. So that'd be the first name I'd reach out to. I want to also say congratulations to, to one of my friends, Travis Teletachi. He, he'd been with the OVC for the last few years and very involved in all the championships. You know, I saw him around a lot in uh, men's basketball and football, a little bit of everything. But he is now the uh, commissioner of the Metro Atlantic Conference. So congratulations to Travis. I, I was really happy to see him uh, make that move. And uh, he's a guy who's he's worked in different places, including a stint with the New York Mets. And uh, he had some fun stories uh, about working at Shea Stadium and what that whole experience was like. So I, I was really happy for wow. Travis to hear that news. All right, Chris, as we wrap up, you and I are going to get together and see a concert on Saturday. Uh, we'll be making the trip down I-24 to Chattanooga. We're going to see Robert Plant and Allison Krauss, which I, I've always thought over the years that, that that's such an interesting combination of musicians and performers from different you know, genres of music. Allison, of course, the, you know, the, the queen of bluegrass and Robert Plant, the, the golden God from the Led Zeppelin days, but yeah. uh, they, they, they played together and made albums together for, for years. And uh, we're going to have a chance to, to check out their act in Chattanooga. Looking forward to it. I've actually seen them in that very same venue when they released their first album. And we thought all, all the fans of those two thought they'd immediately toss out another one. There was one in the works, T-Bone Burnett, obviously the, star producer did that one and i don't know uh robert just wasn't feeling it for about a decade and then they put out another album and it was equally well received and they're on the road so i mean when you got a chance to see uh the, the front man of led zeppelin you got to do it and this will be about the fifth time i've seen allison Krause. she's got the voice of an angel uh one of the greatest fiddle players in history and you know, I grew up listening to bluegrass because of my dad, and and uh, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a fan of country or bluegrass, but uh, my dad kind of gave me the gift of music and, and to be open minded. And so you got to be open minded to listen to the lead singer of Led Zeppelin and the lead <laughs> singer of the best bluegrass band, uh, in you know, together. But they put on a show. It's a great venue. I don't know if you've ever seen a a show in that venue, but you'll love it. Well, looking forward to it and, uh, and getting together and uh, always a lot of fun. And uh, you and I have been to a show or two, so uh, we, uh, we'll see Robert Plant and Allison Krause. And we'll give you the, the full uh, concert review next time we have our podcast. Always a lot of fun, Chris. Talk to you soon, buddy. All right, buddy. Take care. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast.